Good morning. I want to uh, re-emphasize just one of the announcements that uh, we heard this morning related to Wednesday night here at 6.30 in our worship center. We've been praying for 30 days, um, some of us for uh, 180, 90, 200, I don't know how many days we're up to, <laughs> about our students and the complications and our teachers and staff and, and all the craziness that uh, COVID has created in our school system. But we focused for the last 30 days on some very specific pieces of that journey that this group and that we are on with this group. Uh, so on Wednesday night here at 6.30, we're going to culminate that effort as well as kind of kick off um, our students and our staff and faculty into their school year. And we would love for you to be here with us. Uh, it's meant to be interactive. It's meant to be um, experienced with families, if that's appropriate for you. Um, it's not meant to wig you out, <laughs> not meant to make you super uncomfortable, but meant to connect us to our Father, who's the one who's going to ensure the success anyway. All right, so we're going to ask God for some special blessings, and we'd love for you to join us um, Wednesday night, 6.30 here at the Worship Center. Now, uh, we're in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jew. He was born in uh, and at home in, though, a foreign land of Persia. We began the book bearing his name, chapter 1, with the recollection of how his brother, who did live in Jerusalem, visited him. And he asked his brother, how are things going in Jerusalem, right? Um, maybe how are things in our homeland? Now, as far as we know, well, we know Nehemiah wasn't born in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, okay? Um, likely he'd never visited Jerusalem or Judea, but he knew his heritage, right? And he knew his bloodline. And, and chapter 1 shows us that he was, he was broken by his brother's response. And so we began our journey in Nehemiah. We spent the first four chapters looking at um, the most obvious problems in Jerusalem. Right? It was a devastated city. Its gates were burned. Its walls were destroyed and crumbled. Um, it lived under disdain by its neighbors, the same ones who were also um, uh, invaded by and taken over by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, some now probably 100 years before, as we're into Nehemiah chapter 5 today. It, it had a functioning temple, but there's still no real protection for the city and its people. So Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to restore the walls, to rebuild the gates, to offer that kind of protection. But what we've not talked about yet going on in the area of Jerusalem and Judea is what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. Okay? Turn to Nehemiah chapter 5 with me. We're going to be in that chapter today, and we're going to see that beyond the physical realities of the city that we've looked at so far, there were also social and spiritual realities that were equally devastating. Okay? When we look at the people of this area, we see that the economy is terrible. Okay? We'll read about that today. That the citizens are enslaved. They've, they've leveraged their houses. They've leveraged their land. In some cases, they've also leveraged their wives and their children just to survive. They've le leveraged them as collateral um, 
for all the loans that they've taken out. <laughs> now these conditions, um, even as they're building progress, right? Making progress on the wall, we're gonna pick that up next week. But as the progress is going on in the wall, these things are, are even more devastating. These social and spiritual problems are dealing with. Even if the walls were completed, but these issues that we're gonna talk about today, if they went unaddressed, they still would not receive God's blessings. So this chapter is a good reminder to us, whether we're talking about the walls of a city or the structure of a church building, that God's um, personal influence on his people, well, that's, it shows itself in our relationships with him, not, at, not in buildings, not in walls, not in a city, not in structures. God lives among his people. And his influence is seen by how we treat one another and how we relate to him and how we relate to the world that we live in. And that's the picture we have here in chapter 5. So, in chapter 5, the nation has lost its bearings in a number of ways. And as a result here, we see that the people are going to cry out. We're going to begin in, in verse 1 here. But remember with me, the problems in Jerusalem and Judea, those are not new Problems. The things we're going to read about today, they're not new problems. What is new is that they have a new leader. And he is a leader that is um, different than the others. He's related and connected to God. He has a moral compass about right or wrong that's based on the scriptures. And I think that people feel empowered. Here's a godly leader who's going to do something about our situation. So they raise their voices. Verse 1. It says, now the men and their wives raised a, grout, a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Okay, Now th this, this part is important, right? Because they're not crying out against the foreigners carrying out these atrocities. It's not the foreigners who are doing all these things, the people who don't know God. This is God's people and how they're treating God's people. And it's noteworthy. And it, it, to Nehemiah, it's going to be sad. And it's going to be maddening. Verse 2, some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes. Um, I'm sorry, still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. So some of them, they were just workers, right? And their typical job would have been to harvest the crops of those who did own land and were farming that land. And, and they don't have time to do it because they're working on the wall. But others, because they're also vested in this project, they're like, we, we don't have time to do our stuff to make our money to do that plus the whole economy is in a, in a shambles and as a result we're having to mortgage our land or mortgage our houses just to pay for food for our family and a, and a third group says beyond that we even got these taxes that we owe to um, to the government to the king and so we've even had to put some of our family members in servitude or in slavery to be able to have money to make it and all of that kind of thing. Now, uh, pick up in verse 5 with me again. 
They say, although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we are subject to our we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have also already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Okay? Now all of these groups, right? They're having to mortgage and or sell their children into slavery. Literally, they belong to someone else because that's the only way they've been able to pay to have food and the only way they've been able to take care of their basic living expenses. This is the first time, by the way, in the, the chapter that we come to understand that there's been a famine, right? That's what's driving the change or the difficulty in the common. The prices are high. The grain supply, supply is low. Everything we need, we can't afford. And because we can't afford it, we're having to take out loans, or in other words, we're having to leverage our homes and our land and our family to accomplish it. Now, think about Nehemiah's workforce, right? Remember what we read last week? Half of them are working to build this wall, this project that God had sent him for, by the way. They're building this wall. One hand, they either have a sword or they have it strapped on them. The other half of the labor force is watching for the attacks from the enemy. All of them are consumed with this project. Remember, they're even staying in the city at night to stand guard and protect what is going on. And it leaves no time, no energy for their own personal and family responsibilities, like basic things like gathering food <laughs> to feed your family, paying taxes, that type of thing. As a result, their debts and their taxes were getting unpaid. Uh, people were going hungry. If we think about our day and time, like the equivalent of the payday loans, like that was a thriving business in their time because everybody was having to leverage their future just to pay for their now. Now listen, God had given instructions in his word, in the law that they knew about how to treat the poor among them, yet despite this, They ignored it, right? People were going ignoring the Lord, the laws that God had given Israel. In, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 20, it says, hello. <laughs> in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 20, it says, when someone has to borrow from you, when someone um, leverages their life, don't treat them as a slave. Treat them as a brother instead obviously not what's going on here in this chapter. So, so the, the bottom line is that many of the wealthier Jews were taking advantage of the poor for personal gain. Now, the people brought these struggles to Nehemiah's attention, knowing that like he displayed his love for God. He had, had verbally talked about doing what was right, and so when they bring this complaint to him, his response shows that he is a righteous man. Look at verse 6. It says in Nehemiah's words, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. So once again, Nehemiah's um, his leadership, his life are going to be on display. How do, you, how do you respond to something like that? Well, for Nehemiah, his response was first to contemplate and then to respond. 
okay? which would frustrate some of you. You're like, what do you need to think about? It's wrong, just do something. That's how we get in trouble sometimes too, right? Now, I think we have a good picture here in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6 of what it looks like when the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. When, when anger can actually be righteous indignation, it can be, I'm angry because it's right to be angry. I'm angry because what's happening is not right. That's what's going on with Nehemiah here. He's angry because how God's people are ignoring God's word. And yet, certainly he has to contemplate, like, how much is my project contributing to this? Like, I know God sent me here for this. I know God wants this work to be done, but it's causing some chaos, some confusion, some heartache on the part of the people. So I think he seeks God, right? And he contemplates his response, and then he addresses the sinful behavior of the perpetrators, right? Look down at verse 7. It says, I pondered them, meaning the charges that had just been brought, in my mind, and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them... You're charging your own people interest? Okay? Maybe the maybe the modern equivalent would be like you're treating your brother like you're a pawnbroker. <laughs> sure, I'll take your stuff, but hey, if you want it back, it's gonna cost you. That kind of stuff is what's going on. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now take note, the, the Nehemiah, the godly leader originally the people were in servitude to the the other people of other nations who didn't follow God and so whether out of his own funds and resources or out of the resources from collecting taxes that had been accumulated they actually bought back the Jews from the pagans who they were indentured to or who they were in servitude to and Nehemiah is like how can we do this to our own people, right? And we bought them back from them just so they could be in servitude to you? He says, now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And look at their response. It says they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Ever, ever been like caught? <laughs> ever been like accused and you're like, uh, I have no defense. I'm, I'm hosed right here. That's what's going on. They had no response. Their silence only confirmed their guilt. Nehemiah had brought God's word and God to bear on their own examples and his own example, on their own behavior. It says then in verse 9, So I continued, What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? To Nehemiah, it always comes back to this. Like, are we bringing glory to God through our lives? It's always a great filter for us to ask in every situation in life. But that's the one that Nehemiah is asking here. Are you bringing glory to God with your life? Like, like you're not only abusing your fellow Jews, but you're bringing shame upon the name of God by your wrong behavior before these pagan neighbors. Okay? Now we're going to come back to some application points at the end because I want to just kind of trek through and get the story of what's happening here before we go to the application side. So back in Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to see from Nehemiah a picture of like his example. 
okay? A source of great authority. And see what I mean as we read through this. Nehemiah's called together the guilty, right? This large gathering. All of the, the people of influence and wealth. No doubt many of those who are being taken advantage of are looking on as well. Pick up with me in verse 10. He said his own example. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Now, Nehemiah knew there would be needs, right? And he expected God's people to meet the needs of one another because that's what God had told us to do. He just expected them to do it in God's way, and that's not what was happening. Now, some people believe that, that verse um, 10 here is a confession by Nehemiah, okay? Me and my guys, we're lending them money too. Let's all just stop, stop charging interest. Okay? I don't think that's what's going on, simply because as we read through Nehemiah's life, it doesn't fit the character that we see of Nehemiah. As we read through the rest of this chapter, I don't think it fits it either. Uh, just some people think that. So I think he's calling out to these other leaders, listen, we're helping them too but we're going to do it different than what you guys are doing. Verse 11, he says to them, Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, and also the interest you're charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Now remember, Nehemiah is the governor, right? He's appointed by the king of Persia. He can give them commands, <laughs> and they're supposed to obey them. So they return the land return the possessions, return the taxes that they've wrongly taken, their response in verse 12, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Okay? But remember what they'd just been doing, and their character was in question. Like, you ever have someone who told you something, and you're like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Okay? Uh, Nehemiah maybe gets a, a sense of that, so he's going to up the ante just a little bit here on them. Look what he does in the next verse. He says, Then I summoned the priests, and I made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. Okay, but let's, let's get the preacher over here, and maybe if he's a witness to it, they'll do it better. Now, in our house, um, I, don't, I hope it's not because our character is in question, right? or not because we're not telling the truth, but periodically, we may not give Karen all of the story because she would just worry a little bit more than we think she needs to. And she knows that. So periodically, we're sitting around the family table like we'll do this afternoon, and she'll say, now listen, I have a question for you. But before you answer that question, I want you to remember that Jesus is in the room, is in the room here with us, so you better tell it to me right. <laughs> That's her version of, all right, I want the long version this time because I know you're holding out on me. All right? Now, so Nehemiah, he calls the preacher or the priest, and he says, listen, let's make them swear on oath here. Let's go on. And then he goes even further there in verse 13. He says, I also shook out the folds in my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out their house and possessions, out of their house and possessions, anyone who does not keep this promise. So much may a person be shaken out and emptied. Okay. If you don't do as you have said, may God take away everything that you own, is what he's doing there. And at this, the whole assembly said, Amen. 
and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years later, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. Okay, so as the governor, Nehemiah could have taxed them. He could have collected from them. He could have collected silver. He could have collected part of their crops, all of those things. But he said, we didn't do that. And I think that's because he, like he, he saw what was going on. There's a famine in the land. The people are struggling. Why would he go ahead and call all that on them and take all of that from them when he saw them struggling? Well, he didn't, but the people before him did. Look down at verse um, 15. It said, but the early governors, earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God. You catch those words? But out of reverence for God. That is, that's Nehemiah's base. That's how he chooses what he's going to do. Out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, he said, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men assembled there were for the work. We did not acquire any land. Okay, now, so Nehemiah has been sent by God to accomplish this task. And he's focusing on the task. He's like, I didn't come here to make money. I didn't come here to acquire land. I didn't come here to build my resume or to make a name for myself. Furthermore, he says in verse 17, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Okay, so even the obligations he had that came with his role to host people from other countries or people inside his country, all of that type of thing, he said, I still didn't demand that from others. I took care of that myself because the others, the people, remember we're starting the chapter, the people were already struggling to provide for themselves. Why would I make them provide for me? And then I love verse 19. He closes that chapter. He says, Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Okay? Like, I really appreciate that because Nehemiah was doing what he thought was right all along. He had a heart for God out of his reverence for God. He'd done all these things, and yet it, it's now put him sideways, no doubt, with some of the nobles and the officials, some of the higher-ups or the influential people who'd been in the country a lot longer than he had. And yet they were doing things wrong. It, it created these struggles between people. And it amplified the struggles, at least initially, because he was calling them out on it. And yet he had to trust that by obeying God, by making these hard but right decisions as a leader, that, I do, that I'm doing right by God. Now, um, some application pieces. I've just chosen three. I think there's a lot of rich application in Nehemiah chapter 5. But there's three things that speak to our lives that we ought to um, just make sure that we've got right before we leave this chapter and move on. And the first is this. 
God has compassion for those who are poor, and we, as a result, have to have compassion for them also. You know, it's one of the most often used descriptions of God in the Old Testament, and really throughout the whole scripture, is that God is compassionate. God cares about people. Specifically, he cares about those, we're told, who are poor and needy. And particularly, he cares when those poor and needy belong to him. Now, in our text, I think the poor also happen to be the ones who are working for God's purposes in building the wall. Um, they were committed to God's vision, yet they were being exploited by those with means. You, you just want to ask, like, did, did the people who were doing the exploiting, did, did they think that God didn't notice? I mean, did they think that God wouldn't care? And then, like, if you really want to go to meddling, we have to ask ourselves, do we think when we don't show compassion to people that God doesn't notice? And do we think when we don't show compassion to people that God doesn't care? He does. Jesus made it clear in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, when he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, many of you know that there's a spiritual gifting of mercy okay, that, that fuels kingdom words and actions. But there is also a calling to be merciful that applies to every follower of God. God is merciful. He's compassionate. Therefore, you ought to be merciful and compassionate. And I need to be merciful and compassionate even if it's not my gift <laughs> it is my um, obligation as a follower of him because how we respond to people who have needs is a reflection on the God we serve if we bear his name if we are followers of Jesus then how I respond to someone who has a need is how people believe that God has told me to respond to someone who has a need. It, it, we, you and I are witnesses to the nature of God by our actions. And we're either good witnesses or we're poor witnesses. Second thing I think is strong in this particular passage application-wise is that there's a godly way for us to respond to criticism. Okay? Being on the receiving end of criticism, like it's a common experience for us. We all have that. Whether that criticism comes from our family from those that we lead or those who lead us, whether it comes from um, people at work, uh, our customers, our neighbors, sometimes our fellow believers, other Christians, our fellow workers, students, coaches. Uh, I could go on listing a lot, right? I mean, criticism is a part of life in this way. I like Nehemiah's productive approach to criticism. First, he listened. Then he thought it over. And then he responded, and, and then is an important word in that sentence, right? He did it in a certain order. If any of these steps are left out, like the criticism is likely to increase, and the good results are likely to decrease. When you and I take time and care enough to listen to other people, okay, it, it, it's what makes people feel heard and what makes them... Um, 
feel supported at times, and sometimes even makes them feel satisfied just to be heard because it stands out. Someone actually took time to listen to me. But the next step, like thinking things over, more importantly, even taking time to pray before we respond, I think is so critical in this process, right? It's, it's exponentially important, if you would, that we, like Nehemiah, um, when we find ourselves angry after we've listened to someone, how much more important are we that we practice the pause that we've talked about so many times, that we think it over, that we pray it over, that we think about what's my part and what's right here and what's wrong here and, and all of those pieces. And, and let me just add an, a note to those who find themselves on the giving end of criticism, okay, which would, my guess, probably be 100% of us, right? We're, we're receivers of it, and at times we're givers of it. And let's remember when when there's something that we feel like we need to address or criticize, okay, that for us, maybe we should take a little time to think and take a little time to pray before our criticism and maybe it would be received better, okay? Bottom line, pray before you speak. Nehemiah is part of his strategy. And then notice that Nehemiah responds directly to the nobles and the officials who were guilty. Like he didn't talk to everyone else. He called them together and he spoke to them directly, those who needed to be challenged. Matthew 18, verse 15 says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they don't, read on in Matthew chapter 18 about what to do next. But the point is, you talk to the person who's offended you. Listen, keep short relational accounts in life. By not saying something about someone, that you're not willing to say to someone. It's a great principle. Uh, if more people used it, <laughs> this world would be a better place to live in for sure. Listen, speak the truth in love. Don't sin through gossip. It's a great application point of Nehemiah chapter 5. And then the third application point is this, that a godly leader leads by example. By example. One of the strongest elements um, of Nehemiah's leadership was his life. Okay? His example showed the people what it looked like um, to follow God. And his authority went beyond the fact that he was the governor. It wasn't just a positional authority. He had moral authority. Okay? Moral authority is the credibility that you have when you walk the talk. It's a credibility when you have that we're, that you do something, don't just talk about it. Okay? When he could look at them and say, don't charge them interest. And they'd say, what do you know about? Well, I've lent them money too, but I'm not charging them interest. Don't take their, their children as slaves. What are you doing? Well, I'm not taking their children as slaves. His walk and his talk matched each other. There was no hidden motive. There was no hidden agenda no duplicity in his life. He was calling them to live the life that he already was living. No separation between what he said and what he did. Now, Jesus, remember, had moral authority. He did what he said 
that his disciples should do. He did what he said that you and I should do. Remember when he said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? Okay. You think maybe those words played back to his disciples when he knelt down with a towel and a basin of water and started to wash their feet? He was serving them. In John chapter 13, verse 15, after he'd done that, he said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And your personal example is a powerful and an attractive leadership tool. Do what I say, Jesus would say, and do what I do. We love and embrace our leaders who allow for us to learn by imitation. And so when you're calling people out, <laughs> make sure you're living the life you're calling them to. When you're bringing your criticism against someone, make sure you're living a life that will back that up. It's called integrity, moral authority, those pieces. <clears throat> I want to zoom back out here as we finish up, and I want us to just think about, <clears throat> like, remember, these are the people that he's talking to who'd come back from captivity, from the dispersion. Remember, they'd, they'd gone back to Jerusalem with a vision of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city and establishing the name of God and establishing a nation for God. And they had high hopes for all these things, and yet they had gone again awry, seemingly lost their connection to God, seemingly lost their connection to God's word. And as how we think about like how prevalent that is in our society, how far we've drifted from God and his purposes and his ways and certainly from his word. Um, remember a quote I, quote I once read by Alexander Saul in another context. He was writing concerning the history of Russia. And this is what he wrote. He said, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of the Russian Revolution. He says, in the process, I've collected literally hundreds of testimonies. I've read hundreds of books. I've contributed eight volumes of my own to this um, recalling what's happened. He said, but if I were to be asked today to formulate as precisely as possible the main cause of this ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million Russians. He said, I could not put it more accurately than the phrase this, men have forgotten God. What's more, he says, if I were called upon to identify the principal trait of the entire 20th century, I would run, be unable to reflect anything more precise than that very statement, men have forgotten Nehemiah, on the other hand, lived in such a way that he could say there in verse 19, Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. He remembered God. He remembered God's ways. He had been faithful to them and lived a life of faith. And we can't walk away from a text with saying, How about you? And how about me? Do you remember God? in all aspects of your life? How's your faithfulness? How noticeable is your faith? You know, the beautiful thing about God 
as he tells us in his word and he lives out through his spirit a truth that says my mercies are new every morning so maybe today you're like I need a new life <laughs> I need a different life this one isn't working for me that's part of what these people were saying right here in Nehemiah chapter 5 the good news is God is the author not only of life he is the author of new life and he would offer it to you today some of you maybe for the very first time but many of you just a fresh start he says every day I offer you a fresh start now there's a problem if every day we're calling for a fresh start <laughs> but if today like you find yourself six months in the crazy six months discouraged six months kind of off course because of all the craziness around you God says I can bring settling inside of you my mercies are new every morning let's start again today if you need to talk about that okay our staff leaders will be outside afterwards we'd love to talk to you about that new life that God is offering for today let's pray together and father we are thankful that there are new starts goodness we've taken advantage of that so many times and and Lord, I don't think that, um, <clears throat> I think that brings joy to your heart, not breaks it. What breaks your heart are the lives that we live sometimes where there's a disconnect between our faith and our lives. And yet when we want to reconnect those two things and live a life that honors you and brings glory to you, Lord, I believe that you, uh, you are filled with joy. That's why you offer us that new mercy and we claim it today in the name of Jesus.